Last week, we finished up Nehemiah chapter 6. In our look at those final 10 verses, we saw the enemy redouble their efforts to stop the work of God and the reconstruction of the walls around Jerusalem. Their primary target, as it had been so often before, was the leader of the Jews and the governor of Judea, Nehemiah. They knew that if they could get rid of Nehemiah or stain his character and reputation through temptation and accusation, they would be well on the way to stopping what God was doing in Jerusalem. Without a scruple between them, Sanballat and Tobiah hired a person of religious influence inside the city and close to Nehemiah to lie to him in the name of the Lord, no less. There is no low to which your enemy will not stoop to destroy your Christian testimony, even if it means destroying your reputation. But our hope, our deliverance is found exactly where Nehemiah found victory. He knew the word of the Lord and he walked close with him. Nehemiah's fear of God conquered all other fears he may have had. This gave him the confidence to call out the lie and speak the truth. It gave him courage to obey the Lord, even at the risk of his own life. Nehemiah knew that the battle was the Lord's. No matter how many advantages the enemy seemed to have, money, influence, family ties, popularity, the enemy did not have the truth. Nehemiah had truth. Truth put him on God's side, and God guarantees victory to those that are in him. I put myself into a bit of a spot by finishing my message at the end of chapter 6 last week. This is because Nehemiah chapter 7 consists of five verses explaining some of the things Nehemiah took care of once the walls were complete and the gates were hung, and then 68 verses repeating what Ezra recorded in Ezra chapter 2, basically listing the Jews that returned to their homeland out of Babylonian captivity. Chapter 7 also concludes the third major section of the pair of books, Ezra-Nehemiah. So that means it's time to do another flyover. What I've decided to do, therefore, is summarize chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, in my introduction, and then we'll hop in our jet and do the flyover. One fine morning, right? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Then it was, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God 
put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, dot, dot, dot. Then it goes on to list the names that Ezra had listed of those that had left Babylon um, due to uh, Cyrus the Great's decree and come to Jerusalem. Now there's slight differences in those lists because it appears as though one of them was made on the way out of Babylon and the other one was made on the way into Jerusalem, but they're um, very, very similar. In these verses, Nehemiah explains that his building project is complete and he appoints two men to oversee Jerusalem. The two men that are put in charge are Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, who way back in chapter one, explained the condition of Jerusalem's walls to Nehemiah. And he also appointed Hananiah, whom Nehemiah knew well from his work in the citadel at Susa. He describes Hananiah as a faithful man who feared God more than many. He gave these two men instructions as to how to properly defend the city from her enemies by appointing watchmen for the walls and inside the city. As I was studying this week, some interesting parallels struck me about these few verses. Firstly, the names Hanani and Hananiah mean favored and the Lord has favored. Could also mean gracious and the Lord is gracious. They were to be left in charge as Nehemiah left the city for a while. He would return again later and take up the governorship again, but for now, he was returning to the king of Persia. Now, remember how I suggested to you that Nehemiah seems to me to be a type of Christ in his role as a great leader? Think about the implications of that regarding Nehemiah chapter 7. Jesus Christ humbly came to restore the walls of our lives as well. When his work was done, he returned to his place at the right hand of the Father, leaving the spirit of grace with us as we navigate through our lives here. Remember, he didn't leave when the work was incomplete. He completed the work entirely before he returned home. And he's coming again. When he comes a second time, he will be the acknowledged ruler and will deal harshly with those that are disobedient to the law of his God. Just wait until you see what Nehemiah does when he returns in chapter 13. He goes tearing people's beards out. One of the reasons I don't have a beard. Never know where there's a Nehemiah around that's upset with you. Food for thought. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, not because everything is going well and the people are living in obedience, but because many of the people have drifted into disobedience. Considered in this way, there is much to think about in those first five verses of chapter 7, and perhaps I should have taken more time to cover them, but upward and onward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we once again look into your word this morning, we are so grateful that it is an anchor for us, that it is truth. We don't have to filter it. 
We don't have to wonder how much of it is truth and how much of it is not. We know that it is absolutely true because these words are your words to us. Thank you for your word. We are so blessed. I pray that you would give courage to your people, that you would give courage to your church to do that which is right, to follow you in obedience, to be a kind of Nehemiah in our society today. But mostly, Lord, just simply and humbly, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word this morning, that we might be drawn closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as a result of spending time with you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, I've titled the chapter, A 30,000-Foot Flyover. Some of this will be reviewed to many of you, but sometimes it's helpful to hear things several times. We remember them better, I think. The book of Ezra Nehemiah, which originally was one book, and we've divided into two, is divided into three major parts and a conclusion. Part one is Ezra chapter 1 through 6, in which Zerubbabel leads the people to Jerusalem to build the altar and the temple. The prophets during this time were Haggai, who was quite elderly at the time, and Zechariah, who was quite young, maybe even a teenager at the time. Zechariah continued his prophetic work right into the time of Nehemiah. Then part two is chapters 7 through 10 of Ezra, in which Ezra leads the people in establishing a community built around the Torah. Somewhere during the same time Ezra and Nehemiah were leading the Jews, the prophet we call Malachi lived and prophesied. Part three, the final part, which we'll look at today other than the conclusion, Nehemiah leads the people in building a wall around Jerusalem. And of course, the conclusion, which will be chapters 8 through 13, which we will begin in a couple weeks, Lord willing. The first three parts all run parallel with one another. Each part begins with a Persian king being moved by the Lord to make a decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem under a Jewish leader. In the first part, Ezra chapter 1 through 6, Cyrus, king of Persia, who conquered Babylon, freed the Jews to go back to their homeland under the leadership of Zerubbabel. In the second part, Ezra chapter 7 through 10, Artaxerxes commissioned Ezra to return to Jerusalem with an abundant treasure for the temple, by the way, and establish a community based around the Torah or the law of Moses. In the third section, which is the section we just completed, Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, again, Artaxerxes is asked by his cupbearer, Nehemiah, if he can return to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls. Then, in all three of these cases, when the work is begun, the Jews encounter opposition. It is in the first seven chapters of Nehemiah, which we have just finished, that we see the opposition to the work really ramp up as Nehemiah fearlessly moves forward with the construction of Jerusalem's wall. But again, in all three of these parts, 
The Jews overcome the opposition as they trust the Lord, and the work is completed, but always with a shadow of disappointment at the end of the work. So, let's have our bird's eye view of chapters 1 through 7. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem with great hope, just as Ezra did. Nehemiah was unwavering in his commitment to complete the work of God in Jerusalem. The fact that he, as a Jew, had already risen to a very high position in the Persian capital of Susa under King Artaxerxes already indicates to us that he was a man of tremendous passion, integrity, honesty, ability, wisdom, and faithfulness. Nehemiah had a vision of restoring the walls around Jerusalem, and it seemed as though nothing could get in his way. Then God's work goes forward, but never without opposition. Nehemiah was not going to go about his work with opposition. Although there are others, the two men that are mentioned repeatedly as the enemies of the Jews are Salab, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite. Their opposition is nicely summarized in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. The enemy of our souls never wants to see God's work going forward. And he will do whatever he can to stop it. And Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7, they lay out possibly every category of attack that the people of God have faced or will face. The first attack was disdain. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? The second attack was mocking. And we'll read Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. The third attack was a scheme to use violence to create confusion. Almost sounds like it's out of the news, doesn't it? Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. The fourth attack came from within the Jewish ranks. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. This chapter goes on to describe 
how some of the greedy nobles and rulers had taken advantage of their poorer Jewish brethren to pad their own pockets. The fifth attack was a kindly but deceptive offer of friendship. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. The sixth attack was personal slander against Nehemiah. Again, sounds like the news. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are building the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. The seventh attack was a temptation designed to mar Nehemiah's character. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. But ultimately, God secures the victory. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. So why are these histories in my Bible? This is really why I'm doing these overviews. It is one thing to read Ezra and Nehemiah and know that they are God's word to man. We can learn these incredible lessons and be lifted up in our spirits by communing with God through these passages. But it is also a wonderful occurrence when we can begin to understand why God made this part of his story to mankind. I try to present these overviews to remind us that the Bible is about God. The entirety of the scriptures is given to us so that we might know him. 
On a secondary level, the Bible is about mankind. It tells us who we are as human beings, but even that is only important because mankind is created in the image of God. At the third level, the Bible speaks to us as individuals. It tells me how I, as a person, can be in a right relationship with God. All of this, of course, culminates in the gospel, the central story of the Bible. It explicitly relates to all three levels of understanding of the Bible that I just mentioned. It tells us who God is and what he is like. It tells us that all of mankind has access to the Father through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it tells me that I am loved of God. And in his grace and mercy, Jesus Christ died for me. It is natural for us to get this upside down sometimes, though. We can read the Bible and think, how does this apply to me? You think of the old, uh, the old jokes about having Bible studies, and the first question is, what do these passages make you feel? It's like, no, that's not how we study the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with wondering how a specific passage applies to you in its proper place. But I think that question should come after, what can I learn about God in this scripture? And then, what does this scripture tell me about mankind in general? In fact, we cannot truly understand who we are or who mankind is until we know who God is, particularly through the person of Jesus Christ. So much of modern theology and religiosity tries to understand God through understanding man first. These modern systems are riddled with people who claim that we cannot understand God until we understand ourselves. No wonder there is no concept of grace or even fear of God in these unbiblical systems. They're starting in the wrong place and looking in the wrong direction. And that's not a good way to make progress. That's why I believe these overviews are important. Zerubbabel and the altar and the temple he built were not the final answer. Zerubbabel was of the kingly line of David. The Jews knew that God had promised Israel a king that would arise, a root of Jesse, and conquer the nations and rule over Israel in perfect righteousness and justice. And now Cyrus had granted them the freedom to go home and they were being led by this man, Zerubbabel. Was he the one? Was it under his leadership that a thousand years of messianic promises would be fulfilled? So they completed the altar as soon as possible so they could offer sacrifices to the God of Israel. Then, much later, they completed the temple on Mount Zion and dedicated it to the Lord. Could this be the time? Was the presence of the Lord going to return to the temple and bring about complete victory for the Jewish remnant? And then nothing happened. The glory of the Lord did not fill the temple as it had for Moses and for Solomon. Apparently, this was not the time. Apparently, Zerubbabel was not the one. Of course, these Jews would have known this if they had carefully studied the writings of Daniel, especially chapter 9. But we don't know how widespread Daniel's writings were at this time. 
They may not have had access to them just yet. Anyway, whatever God was going to do to usher in a messianic kingdom, it wasn't going to rely on a physical altar or a rebuilt temple or even a mere man like Zerubbabel. God's kingdom would not be ushered in by the sacrifice of animals, no matter how sincere or proper these offerings were. These were shadows and lessons. So along comes Ezra. Ezra and the community he built around the Torah, though, were not the final answer. After Zerubbabel, the king of Persia, sends a priest and a scribe named Ezra to establish a Jewish community built around the law of Moses. Perhaps this was the thing they were missing. After all, God, through the prophet Samuel, said, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. From 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. But from the moment he arrives in Jerusalem, Ezra can see that the people have been living in open disobedience to God's law. He desperately tries to clean up the situation, but to do this, he must enact a mass divorce decree for over a hundred couples, some of whom have children. To Ezra and anybody else that had their eyes open, this didn't look at all like the beginning of an age of righteousness that God would usher in for his people. Seventy years of captivity didn't change the sinful hearts of men. A wonderful release from this captivity in Babylon didn't change the sinful hearts of men. An altar, a temple, strict justice dealt out by Ezra, all didn't change the sinful hearts of men. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. If God was going to use a priest to write his law on the hearts of men, Ezra wasn't that priest. An outward obedience to the law of Moses, no matter how sincere or well-intentioned, was not going to bring about God's kingdom. This is doomed to failure. Paul even states later on in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, the law was our tutor, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In other words, 
It was never the purpose of the law to bring about righteousness, even the perfect law of God. Finally, Nehemiah and the wall he built around Jerusalem were not the final answer either. Nehemiah was a great leader, one of the greatest leaders of all time. The manner in which he faced opposition and achieved victory over his enemies ought to be an inspiration and a pattern to us all. In so many ways, he is a type of Christ as great leader. God had commissioned Nehemiah to rebuild, and it seemed that in his unwavering obedience, nothing was going to prevent him from fulfilling that commission. Perhaps he thought if the people of God had peace and security, they could control the influences in and out of their community by way of a strong wall. God then would see fit to establish his kingdom there. These gates and walls can point towards so many things in our own lives that we think will usher in the kingdom, so to speak. But you could summarize these walls as maybe moral integrity. Walls are good. Moral integrity is good. But this is not what God will use to bring about his kingdom on earth. In fact, let me read you a passage from Zechariah, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah. I'll read from chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. Zechariah here is in the midst of a series of visions given to him by the Lord. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst." So Nehemiah's walls were not going to usher in an age of peace and prosperity under a Messiah king either. God's vision of Jerusalem is a city bursting at the seams with people, and he himself would be a wall of fire all around all of it. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 18 says, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. For the Jews of that day, and for all mankind for that matter, there was still something missing. There needed to be a king of the line of David greater than Zerubbabel, that would rule over all the nations. There needed to be a priest greater than Ezra that could accomplish the miracle of writing the law of God on the very hearts of men. This transformation would enable God's people to live in obedience without the threat of a tutor ready to strike them at every transgression. There needed to be a leader greater than Nehemiah that would not need to build a wall around Jerusalem 
because he himself would be the wall of fire around his people to protect protect them. He would be salvation, just like Isaiah said. All of this would be fulfilled someday in a person Daniel called one like the Son of Man. Let's read that passage, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So why are these histories in my Bible? I present to you Jesus Christ, the prophet greater than Moses and Zechariah, the priest greater than Aaron and Ezra, the king greater than Zerubbabel and David, and he loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And one day, very soon, he's coming back for you. As believers, we can be more sure of this than that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow morning. In him lies all our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is true. And the deeper we dig and the more we search, the more convinced we are of its absolute inspiration. We're so grateful that we can look into your word freely still. Pray that we would not take this for granted, that we would love your word, that we would embrace your word. Because in it, we learn of Jesus, the perfect image of who God is, our perfect pattern, our perfect savior, and our perfect hope. Help us to cling to him, especially through these difficult days. It's so easy to drift. It's so easy to get distracted. but we need to be secure in Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anybody listening this morning that is moved in their spirits to seek the Savior, that you would draw close to them even now. That you would show them that you are the answer. That you promise them absolute victory. And I pray for those of us that have already trusted him, that we would walk closer to him as a result of being in your word this morning than we did before. Even so, come again soon, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.